Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is Steve Onan, the president and CEO of the New Hampshire Hospital Association. The New Hampshire Hospital Association is an independent, nonprofit association representing the interests of the hospitals in the state of New Hampshire. Steve joined the New Hampshire Hospital Association in 2008 after spending 16 years in progressive leadership roles with the American Hospital Association in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, we talk about the role of both the American Hospital Association and the New Hampshire Hospital Association and what it is like to work as an industry advocate at the national and state levels. I hope you enjoy listening to Steve's story. And if you find it valuable, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you might be accessing this recording. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening. And here is Steve Onan. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Good to be here. So, uh, Steve, you went to the University of Kansas and double majored in political science and German. So I'm curious, what brought you to the University of Kansas and and why those majors? Um, I grew up in Kansas City, so uh, lifelong uh, Kansan. uh, And, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of choices about where I was going to go to college. It was going to be a a state school. Both my brother and sister went to that other university down the road. And my brother was still there and I didn't want to be same school he was in. So uh, KU was really a, a great choice and, and a good fit for me. Yeah. Yeah. And what was, you, were you already thinking about going into the field of politics and policy or was it something you kind of landed while you were in school? No, actually, um, you know, I went to college and I was going to be a business major, right? You know, everybody, okay. what, what, what else are you going to do? Um, so I, I was a, I was in the business school for, I think, one year and learned pretty quickly that that probably wasn't the right place for me and took a political science course that I just found fascinating and really enjoyed it and uh, you know, decided pretty much on the spot that that was the path I was going to go down. And German was just a, you know, that was kind of fun for me. I had taken German in high school and I knew I was going to continue to take, you know, a class or two. And I thought, well, why not take a extra class or two and end up with a major and ultimately actually spent a year uh, studying abroad in Germany as as well. Neat. So did that interest in politics build? How did you, because your first job out of school was as a legislative aide for two members of Congress uh, for Kansas. So, I mean, that's a, that's kind of a, 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 big jump to just a passing interest to, to a pretty intense uh, engagement. Yeah, you know, so when I, um, so as I said, I studied abroad my junior year, uh, came back and ended up uh, needing an, another year to finish my undergrad, just because I couldn't take all the courses I, I needed to while I was while I was studying abroad. And my last semester as an undergrad, I spent uh, in Washington as an intern at a little nonprofit group called the Congressional Management Foundation. Um, they still uh, exist today. They do a lot of work sort of on the management side of, of Congress. So think of them as a management think tank for, for congressional offices. And they do a, a salary survey, a tenure survey of Hill staff. And it was, it was a 
fascinating opportunity to really get the insight of what happens on Capitol Hill, but not so much from a political perspective. When I was choosing, you know, what internship I wanted to do, a lot of people chose to do an internship on Capitol Hill. I steered away from that because most of what I had heard some of my predecessors that had done those worked for Senator Dole and and others, and they ended up, you know, basically walking the dog and, and getting his you know, dry cleaning. And I thought, you know, that really doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. So I actually had an opportunity when I was uh, at the Congressional Management Foundation to do some work on how does a congressional office sort of manage its constituent correspondence? And and because um, if, you, if you can't respond to constituents' letters and requests and those things, you're not going to generally, um, you know, get reelected very often. And so um, one of the things that I did was a, a study on you know how they organize their offices how they organize their filing systems and, and the like so again it was a very different focus that it wasn't a political focus but it really gave me an opportunity and and it was you know just by happenstance that I got my first job I was talking to my professor back at, at the university and I said gee you know I'm gonna graduate pretty soon and I'm trying to figure out what do I you know what am I gonna do I'm gonna come home and you know maybe there's some opportunities at the state capitol in Topeka and he said, have you looked out the window? Do you, do you know where you are? You're like in the center of the political universe. Um, yeah. Have you thought about working in Washington? And I thought, well, you know, not, I guess, yeah, that'd be, that'd be pretty cool. And literally two days later, he calls me back and he says, hey, I just got a phone call from uh, Congressman Whitaker's office. And they're looking for a, you know, a, a junior legislative aide, somebody coming right out of college, something you think you'd be interested in. Does it meet? Does it match your politics? And and so that's literally how I got my first lead on that job. And then the work that I'd done at the Congressional Management Foundation really spoke to the kinds of things that they were interested in in terms of just my background and all of that. So I mean, literally, that's how I got my first job. I started literally a week after graduation and, you know, kind of the, the rest is, is history. But what's, what's interesting, you know, how I got my start in healthcare, when I started, I was not the healthcare legislative aide. And in fact, Congressman Whitaker served on the Energy and Commerce Committee and the Health Subcommittee, which has pretty broad oversight of a whole host of things, Medicaid, Medicare Part B, and Food Drug Cosmetic Act, and a whole whole lot of things. The, the woman who was managing those issues after about six months that, that I was there, her husband got a new job and they left town. And so they were trying to hire somebody. So, you know, serving on that committee, they, they really wanted somebody who really understood those issues. And then midway through that search, he announced he was retiring. So he had about a year left of his term. And as soon as he announced he was retiring, there was, there was really no one who knew anything about healthcare that was going to be interested in taking a job that, that literally only lasted 12 months. Now, jobs on Capitol Hill, everybody that takes those understands, you know, that's a, a real possibility that your boss could, could retire, they could lose, but you always want to sort of land someplace where you have some longevity. So not having uh, an ability to hire somebody who knew anything, they said, hey, Steve, what are you, what are you doing? Do you want to do healthcare? Oh. And, and I thought, hey, that sounds kind of interesting, you know, the, this, uh, you know, it's a big issue and lots of things going on. I'm sure I'll, 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 I'll try that. And that's, you know, that's literally how I got started in healthcare. And it was just, you know, fascinating. So I graduated in May and in September, the Congress is working on recon budget reconciliation and I'm sitting in a room and again, I'm in the, in the bleachers. Um, I'm have no immediate role, 
But I'm sitting there, you know, Dan Rostenkowski, Lloyd Bentz, and all these titans of, of oh. Congress. And I'm going, oh, my God, look at where I'm at. And so that really was kind of the beginning. And, you know, Capitol Hill was such a great place to, to get a start in, in my career because in, in some ways it, it, was, it was a lot like college, you know, because you had the research issues. You had to find out a lot about stuff. You had to, con, you know, pull lots of information, condense it and present it to, to your boss in a way that they could understand that met the, the interests of the constituents of the party and all of those things. And so I just found it fascinating. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, for a kid from Kansas, you know, sitting in the room with these titans of, of Congress, that was pretty heady stuff. That is really neat. So had you had like any health experience or did you take any health classes? Like this was just like, hey, figure it out on the fly. I'd been to the doctor a few times um, <laughs> and that was pretty much it. Um, nice. and, and I mean, it was fascinating. I, I remember the first, my first day on the job, Congress was considering changing how physicians were paid and, and really trying to increase reimbursement for primary care physicians, sort of moving away from some of that specialty thing. And I, I had, uh, I'll never forget the, the woman who was the lobbyist for the uh, internal medicine docs, you know, they're doing their job, they're walking around um, and they, you know, coming in to chat. And sh so she comes in and she sits down and she says, you know, I'd really like to talk to you about why, you know, increasing, um, you know, the relative value scale for primary care is really important and all this. And I, she started, I, I just looked, I said, hey, Laura, can, can you do me a favor? Today's my first day on the job with this issue. Could you maybe back up a little bit and tell me why it's important that we reform physician payments? And so it was, I mean, I, I literally was learning by sort of by, by fire hydrant, right? You know, it was just all coming at you. But, you know, that was fun. And it was an opportunity to, to really learn and to have an impact on something that was a, a lot bigger than just you. You know, I, I, I just want to pause for a second before, because I, that's really interesting. But I want to, your internship, where you actually chose, instead of being focused on policy, you were more focused on kind of the mechanics of how those offices run. I mean, that kind of runs back to your like, hey, I should be a business major. Uh, and then you changed your mind. But then, but then you wound up focused on like kind of nuts and bolts management kind of question. That must have actually made you more appealing, I imagine, just that knowledge to the, to the congressman who, who actually hired you because you were coming in with some understanding of of actual operations work in their offices. That's kind of neat. Yeah. And actually that, that was one of the things that the, the chief of staff told me later that was really the thing that kind of tipped the scales in my favor. Cause you know, I didn't grow up in, in the Congressman's district. So while I grew up in Kansas, I, I certainly didn't grow up in, in his district. Um, so, you know, for them having somebody who understood how an office functions and why it's important that it function well, um, they felt was you know really uh, a key you know a key piece in in why why they they ultimately chose me. I mean, I just that the reason I focus on that is just because I talk to my students a lot about you know the experiences that they're gathering and you know you just never know what is going to be relevant and come together for your future plans. So that's that's a really neat uh, story. So you your your boss at the time was going to retire in a year you were so you had that year to work on health policy. You were in that role for about 3 years. Did you continue with health policy work after he left? I did. I did. Um after uh he retired, I went 
over and worked for my hometown congresswoman, Jan Myers, uh, from the Kansas City area, and worked for her for a little over two years before I, I left Capitol Hill. So, and my focus there was on uh, healthcare issues uh, as as my main you know main area focus. So that's another kind of like you just kind of randomly landed into this health policy specialty, and then it kind of built. And you did so. You wound up doing a total of three years working with with the Congress um, people. And what drew you? So from there, you wound up moving over to the American Hospital Association. What what made you decide to leave? You know, working directly with the policymakers to working with the hospital association. Yeah, you know, I think for people that work on Capitol Hill, you tend to find folks that you know they're going to be lifers, you know, people who will spend their entire careers on the Hill. And then you'll find people who sort of get a start and then decide, yeah, I'm not sure this is where I want to spend my entire career and then find an opportunity to move out. And then you'll get people who kind of bounce back and forth. And you're, you know, you're certainly seeing that, um, you know, with the new administration, you know, every change in administration at Congress, you've got people coming in and out. I think I, part of the challenge for, for, for me in some respects, as I often reflect on it, I worked for a moderate Republican uh, woman in the House of Representatives at the ascendancy of uh, Newt Gingrich and the Republican, you know, contract with America, and uh, not making uh, political judgments one way or the other, but it was a much more conservative House um, and House leadership. And my boss was not within that framework. She was a a pro-choice, moderate Republican and just wasn't likely going to, you know, sort of be on that leadership track. Although she ultimately did chair the the small business committee in, in the house, and so you know, I always said I felt like kind of that little Dutch boy, um, you know, always trying to put my finger in the dike, but I never could feel like I could get upstream and really solve the problem. I was always addressing somebody else's you know challenges, and so I think I kind of made that decision that you know I, I wanted to do something different where I had an opportunity to to make a difference and and could could impact policy in, in a bigger way. So as a healthcare aide or a legislative aide, you see lots of different groups coming through the office. You see lots of different advocacy coming towards you. And there are certain organizations and things that you see, you're kind of like, man, I couldn't do that for a living. Um, I couldn't I couldn't be pushing, you know, pushing that rock uphill. And then there are others that you really respect. And, you know, I think what I have learned over the years is it's a lot of it's really dependent upon people, right? It's relationships and how organizations behave is how those individuals behave. And the individual who was the lobbyist for our office was a, he was a straight shooter. He would clearly make the case for hospitals, which I expected him to do. But he was also pretty smart about understanding what the what was the other side of the, the issue. You know, if I were to say, well, what would, you know, what would the, the the medical association or what would the opposition say about that? And if somebody can give you an honest answer to that, that to me says a lot about that person. And it says a lot about you know the organization that that they represent. And hospitals are an incredibly important part of the community. They truly are 
community institutions that are so vital to to, to all of our lives and to the community. And so having an opportunity to, to work and to represent an organization like that was something that would, I always said, gee, that if I were going to leave the Hill, that would be the kind of organization that I'd want to go to and had the good fortune of, you know, sort of uh, stepping in, in, in at the right time and was fortunate enough to, to, to land at the AHA. How did the opportunity actually come about? The individual that I worked with um, became vice president in, in the AHA, and they were looking f- they were looking for a new lobbyist. And so he asked if it was something that I would be interested in. And clearly, I was more than interested in in working for the AHA. hadn't always thought about being a lobbyist, but in many ways, it was really just uh, an extension of the kind of work that I was doing. And so I, I said, absolutely, I'd, I'd want to want to move there. And so, you know, just really was was fortunate. That was, you know, in the early 90s. So it was right at the uh, end of the Bush, H.W. Uh, uh, Bush administration and just the beginning of the, of the Clinton administration. And so my focus was going to be on budget and appropriations issues. So think about the incoming Clinton administration and the economic challenges and and the significant budget issues and and the things that that had to happen and ultimately you know sort of the impact on on hospitals was pretty um, you know pretty groundbreaking kind of stuff uh, at the time. Yeah, I mean that was so you were transitioning in the early '90s. We had a bit of a recession, nothing like what we've seen uh, in recent history, but it felt pretty bad at the time because that's when right. I, I graduated from college in those uh, right around that time. And I remember a lot of my friends were not getting jobs, and it they would look pretty bleak. So that was a, yeah. it was a tough time. So I, I mean, you, you ultimately wound up staying with the hospital association, the American Hospital Association, for about sixteen years. I want to ask you a little bit about your career there, but first, maybe could you talk a little bit about you know we've what is what is the American Hospital Association? What does it do, kind of broadly? Yeah, and and that was a, an interesting t- period. So when I came, HA leadership had changed just about a year, year and a half before. Dick Davidson uh, was the president. He had been the president of the Maryland Hospital Association. And, you know, the AHA, the AHA is a, it's a national trade association. So they represent hospitals all across the country. So hospitals of all types, um, large hospitals, small hospitals, rural, urban, academic medical centers, children's hospitals, psychiatric hospitals, hospitals of all types belong to the AHA. And they belong to the AHA for a lot of reasons. But, you know, one of the primary reasons that hospitals join the association is because of the advocacy and representation work that they do in Washington. Um, and that's actually when Dick Davidson was hired at the AHA was something that they were really focused on bringing advocacy and representation to the, as, as the core strength of what the association did. You know, that was when healthcare reform was really beginning to, to take shape. The, the incoming Clinton administration and obviously made that a, a big hallmark of, of their campaign. And so the HA was you know transitioning. They, they, their, their primary headquarters was in Chicago. And so all of their staff, their policy staff, their communication staff, their executive staff were all based in, in Chicago. They had opened an office in Washington in the, the mid to late 60s when Medicare came into to, to being. And, but the Washington office was always much smaller. It was really just the, 
the lobbyists, um, you know, sort of the government relations folks, um, but a much smaller presence. And when Dick came to the HA in the early 90s, he brought all of that policy communication and housed his office uh, there in Washington. And I think, you know, that's something that that's really, really fundamentally important. So much of what happens in hospitals is decided in Washington. So much of, of their payments uh, are dictated by, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, VA, Champus, and, and, and the like. Policies around Medicare, Medicare, not just payment, but how those programs, you know, function, coverage, all of those things have huge implications for, for hospitals. I mean, think about an organization that spends, you know, how much time and resources does an organization spend around its philanthropy, right? You know, maybe maybe philanthropy is 5 or 10% of their overall budget. Medicare, Medicaid, um, government payment could be somewhere, you know, depending upon your the individual institution, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70% or more. And so really the need to really focus on on those policy issues is, is really, really important. And one of the, the challenges, as I said, you've got hospitals of all kinds that join the AHA. So how do you get 5,000 hospitals to agree on, on an advocacy strategy? And, you know, that's that's a real challenge. And the, the diversity can be your biggest challenge, but it can also be your greatest strength. And I think that's what, you know, the AHA certainly attempts to do, I think it's what it's taught me is, you know, as hospitals, we are different, right? You know, we have big hospitals, small hospitals, rural, urban, suburban, for-profit, not-for-profit. But in the end, there is so much more that unites us that we have in common than divides us. So if we focus on that 80, 90, 95% of the issues that really unite us, and we can set those other issues aside we can be very, very successful. And I think that's what, you know, we certainly have tried to do here in New Hampshire, but I know that's, you know, the, the AHA's big focus. I think the, the big change, I, I think, you know, really around associations and, and, and trade groups like, like ours is over the last probably 15 plus years, the, the need to be much more externally focused. A lot of the things we, we've typically done have been focused on, you know, talking to um, Capitol Hill or, you know, governor so-and-so and the like. And while that's still really important, it's been, it's become much more important to speak more publicly, to speak to actual patients and communities, to, to help get them engaged in the conversation. If, if I go talk to a legislator I can make the case for the hospitals. If the hospitals themselves go speak to, to the legislators, they can make those cases about why this bill is important or that bill is, is one we don't, don't like. But if the community can stand up and say, you know, we need to support our community hospital, that's so, so important um, and so powerful for legislators, for governors, for you know, members of Congress and the like to hear those messages. Um, because in the end, Every vote in Congress, every vote in the State House, every vote counts. And so helping them understand what 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 this means for for their their constituents is is so vitally important to the work that we do in ensuring policy, you know, payment and the like ultimately are are aligned to support the work that that our members do. So it's actually it is actually important to, if you're a citizen, to communicate with your, there you have, the representative, our representatives actually listen and take that seriously. They, they do. And, and, you know, it's, it's actually one of the things that I find somewhat frustrating with 
our, our own graduate um, administration, health administration programs, and I'm a product yeah. of one of them, um, is, you know, how much time do we spend sort of talking to, to students about how important the role of advocacy is? You know, in my own program, we got an afternoon lecture about it, but it's really, really important. And for the work of the association, it's fundamental to, to our ability to get the job done. And I can say in, a, in New Hampshire, it, it really is the difference between success and, and failure. I, I would say the HA would, would make that, that same, same argument, but certainly at a local level and in a state like New Hampshire, it's, it's absolutely critical. So you'd been working with Congress for about three years. You jumped over to the AHA. What was it like making the transition from, from being on the, on the policymaker side to being on the lobbyist side? You know, it was, it was interesting. It was, it was funny, actually, when I left. So that was the early 90s. And that was at a point where there, there was more interest and focus on, you know, sort of that revolving door. Members of Congress leaving, staff members leaving, and you know, going to the private sector. And I actually, I, I made Newsweek because I was, I was one of those people, sort of the revolving door. And I just, you know, I had to laugh because wow. they had people like me, and then the who individual was the head of the, the staff director for the Ways and Means Committee. I was like, you know, this big on the scheme of <laughs> twenty five years old, and yeah. <laughs> and here's this person who really knows what the, you know. And so I yeah. just had to to chuckle. I mean, it just happened to be that I left at the time, same time, and so um, I got to be part of the story. But you know, it was, I mean, it was fascinating. That was at a point where. Federal budgets. I mean, you know, federal budgets were pretty sleepy. Um, it wasn't rough and tumble political kind of debates. But as Congress was trying to squeeze, reduce federal spending to limit uh, mandatory spending, Medicare, Medicaid, Medicare, Medicaid budgets became, you know, pretty political issues. And I think for for hospitals, it was really how do we begin to turn that focus to understanding what it means if we're not going to fund these programs. And so I think on one hand, I I certainly felt, man, the momentum has totally shifted the wrong way for a guy whose job is supposed to deliver good budgets to the hospitals. But what I think it taught me was in the world of policy, and politics, you, you you have to take the long view and you really need to help. You know, sometimes you have to really help paint a picture of what the implications of certain things are. You need to identify where you need to get to. And then you got to develop those, you know, steps and strategies in order to, to get there. So I think, you know, for 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 me, it was sort of baptism by fire of, of really getting thrown in. And how do you, how do you make those shifts, certainly bigger than, you know, one junior lobbyist can make them. But I think my job was to help the organization understand the challenges and and really fundamentally understand the, the, the nature of what we were dealing with. And I'll never, never forget one of the things that I did. They were, we were always looking at ways, Congress was looking at ways to cut spending. If, if we only, if we cut X, we could fund this, that, or the other. And so I was going through some stuff one day and the Congressional Budget Office puts out this book. If you cut this program, it saves how many billions of dollars? So 
I didn't have an ax to grind with any of these, but everybody else was coming up with ways to cut the Medicare and Medicaid programs. So we came up with a list of, well, if we cut X number of B2 bombers, we can save how many <laughs> billions of dollars. Um, and it wasn't meant that we should cut B2 bombers, but it was meant to really identify ways that the federal government could could squeeze in other areas than, than, than Medicare and, and Medicaid. So that was one of my first things at the AHA. Uh, it's it's often referred to as the Onan list, even today, um, of you know different ways you can cut cut the cut the federal budget. But um, two bombers, but, again, I, but, yeah. but I but I but I do think it was sort of instructive in that you know sort of short term, long term kind of perspective that you need to have. Wow. Well, you were so you were with the AHA for sixteen years, like I mentioned. So tell tell me kind of the arc of your career with, with the AHA. Um, what, what was it like? So from junior lobbyist to you left, um, so you left, uh, the AHA as a, as a senior vice president for association development. So from junior lobbyist to senior vice president, what was the, what were those 16 years like? Yeah. So, you know, I lobbied for about three plus three, four years, um, directly, and then, uh, had the opportunity to become the chief of staff, to the president of the association. And, you know, that was one of those sort of plucked out of, out of nowhere. And, you know, the, the individual who had that role uh, left and took another role within the AHA and Dick Davidson, you know, was, was a real believer in, you know, sort of promoting from within and giving somebody an opportunity to kind of step up. And, you know, I would say I I was given a a tremendous opportunity to take a big leap in, in my career but uh, you know, it, it was really a great place to learn about leadership, to learn about and how to manage an organization, how to manage a board, and and I would say Dick, you know, Dick Davidson is probably you know the person who has had the most outside of my outside of my own parents um, has had the most impact on my growth and development, and why I'm sitting in this chair today be because of of him. And so, you know, I, I kind of gave up my being, you know, gig and, you know, became much more focused on sort of internal operations, focused on, you know, managing the senior management team for the, for the president. And that gave me insights into board leadership, functioning of, of a board, broader policy, you know, member relations and, and the like, um, and did that for, you know, a number of years and then ultimately um, had an opportunity to become senior vice president and had uh, operational responsibilities under my purview with human resources in our Chicago office. So, you know, really became much more internally focused. And then the last few years became a little bit more externally focused. One of the things that that we really tried to do in uh, my last title as association development was really all around how do we engage with, with other organizations? How do we engage particularly uh, particularly with the business community, we think about healthcare. Hospitals and 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 business have a, have a tremendous amount of of alignment on issues, but in many ways we hadn't really talked about that, and in fact probably found ourselves on opposite sides of of issues at times. And so we really created a, a strategy to engage with the Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, the Small Business, the Retail Federation, and, and a whole host of, of folks to really start to, to understand as health as healthcare reform you know moves forward, how do we how do we work together 
you know, we, 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 you know, we, we did a, a number of, of events um, with the, the Chamber of Commerce. And I still, you know, to this day, um, you know, Tom Donahue, who's still the, at, at, at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, I, you know, it was just fascinating um, for business to kind of understand some of the challenges that, that hospitals are facing and for hospitals to hear the kinds of challenges that, you know, that businesses are, are confronting and worked actually with um, one of the, the chairman of their, their board at the time was a gentleman from Wegmans, uh, the big grocery chain. Um, and uh, People you know, from New England probably don't know Wegmans, but, uh, you know, that's like a grocery shopping date night for, for people, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but, you know, they've done a lot of things of, around reducing healthcare costs, not necessarily just looking at how much they pay to insure their employees, but really keeping their employees healthy. They, they launched this initiative, sort of they, they challenge everybody to, to put a, a pedometer on and challenge everyone, you know, how many steps can you get today and do those kinds of things. But it really was around, you know, sort of that healthy, healthy uh, individual kind of a focus, which was certainly something that was, that was very different. And as we think about this whole population health movement, that was really a, a precursor to all of that. Uh, again, coming back to that, you, you made that kind of offhand comment at the beginning. I just did a business major because what else were you going to do? And then you shifted into this kind of political science and policy role. And then it sounds like you actually spent a lot of time in operations. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, you know, if you'd asked me at age 22, where would I end up? What would I be doing? Sitting in New Hampshire probably wasn't high on that list of things to do, but I really I had an opportunity to do th- do something that allowed me to to learn. It allowed me to grow. It allowed me to 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 give back and to make a difference. And I just kept following that path. I, I had opportunities, and every every opportunity was a was a, a new opportunity to to grow and to to. to expand, you know, my, my, my skills and my, my abilities. And I, I just, I followed that path and, and I kept, I, I've done that. And it, it's been a, it's been an unbelievable career that I've had. I didn't start at the AHA with the notion that I was going to be there for, for 16 years, but man, it was the best career choice I've, I've made only second to the, to the one to come to New Hampshire. But I've, I've been able to, to do things I've been able to to learn, to grow, and to give back, and and to me that that's what it's all about, right? And if I can if I can keep doing that, you know, I'm happy to 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 be right here where I'm at and continue to make a difference. I mean, I think that, and I, you know, you you talk, you know, you talk to to students a lot. You know, what are they, right. you know, what are they interested in? And I have kids that just recently graduated college, one in college, and you know, when I talk to them, you know, the things that they're interested in, you know, they. They want. They want to do. They want to do good. They want to make a difference. Um, they want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And to me, that's a, that's exciting. And it, and it really, I, I I feel really good about the next generation coming behind us. Um, that you know they they are ready. They're they're going to be uh, willing to, to take on a host of new challenges and hopefully solve a lot of the problems that those of us before them made or, or created for them. But um, yeah. uh, I, I really do think that, that, you know, there, there's a lot of hope for the future in that sense. Yeah. I, I just love your, your, your message because it's something that I try to drive home with my students. It's like, if you're open, if you're working hard, the opportunities will come. And if you grab hold of them, you just, 
you know, you might not know what it's going to be. Your, your future is going to be, but as long as, you know, I, I think your story is just great. So the, the, the chief of staff, yeah. let me just add one yeah. point to that. The, the chief of staff uh, to my first boss, the member of Congress that I worked for said something that, and it's always stuck with me when I was applying for my next job. Um, since the, my boss was retiring, he had called and, and spoke to the chief of staff who I who I'd interviewed with um, for my next job and was giving me a, a reference. But he said something that that's always stuck with me. He said, you know, I said, he's a guy who doesn't know a time clock. He's always going to do everything he needs to do to get the job done. And I thought about that. And at the time it, it struck me, man, that was a, that was a really big compliment because it, it, you know, it meant that I was going to do whatever it took to get the job done. And like you, I'm, you know, you've, you've hired people and work, had people work with you. Um, and you've had a lot of people who come, f- come five o'clock, boy, Hey, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. And then those people who they don't look at the, they don't look at the clock, they get the job done. Those are the people that you want working with you and for you. And good people are hard to find. And you find one, you're going to hold on to them and you're going to give them more opportunity, more responsibility. And, you know, that's our, and our job is to help them be successful, taking on those uh, additional responsibilities. Exactly. So in 2008, you, you did leave the American Hospital Association and you came to the New Hampshire Hospital Association to be the president and chief executive officer. So you're a boy from Kansas. You've been spending 16 years in, in DC. What brought you to New Hampshire and the New Hampshire Hospital Association? Yeah, you know, I think, I, you know, I'd been at the HA for a number of years. And, you know, in fact, frankly, many of my colleagues, I'd been there 16 years and I still felt like one of the new kids. Many, you know, there have been many who, you know, spent 30, 40 plus years of their career at the AHA. And I, I you know, I, I, I said, if I'm going to make a change, now's the, the right time. And I'd always been someone a few steps behind the leader. And I'd had opportunities to, 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 to lead and do things, uh, but I was always a step or two behind. And I thought at some point I'd like to, you know, run my own organization. I'd, I'd like to step forward and, and, and provide that leadership. And, and so, you know, I started to, to look around and working at the HA, you see states and, you know, regions of the country. And while I hadn't spent a lot of time in New England, the time I had spent in New England really showed to me that people here, they don't run to government to solve their problems, but they don't run away from government either. And, you know, there seemed to be this sense of uh, a real balance that I thought from a policy perspective, you know, certainly fits my my view. I'm, I'm not a hard left or hard right, or my my view is we need to be pragmatic. And so we sort of work center out. And so it seemed to me that New Hampshire would a state that that might be a good fit. So when my predecessor announced he was retiring, I threw my hat in the ring and came up to the first interview. And I said to the search committee, I said, gee, what on earth could you guys be interested in? You know, this guy from Kansas who spent 20 years in Washington, never been to New Hampshire before. Why on earth would you be interested in me? And the head of the search committee, um, one of the hospital CEOs, looked at me and said, yeah, that's a really good question. But I could ask you the same thing. Uh-huh. Why are you interested in New Hampshire? And so it was a it was a great 
opportunity to really explore that opportunity and think, I hope, I, I certainly hope they feel like, you know, they, they, they found that it was a good fit. I, I know I have. Yeah, that's great. So folks who don't know these organizations might think, oh, the New Hampshire Hospital Association is the local chapter of the American Hospital Association. Talk a little bit about what is the New Hampshire Hospital Association? What, how, and maybe what's its relationship with the American Hospital Association? You know, how is it structured and, and what are its, what's, its, what's its mission? So the, the, the American Hospital Association and the New Hampshire Hospital Association are two entirely separate organizations. Um, there's no organizational or bylaw or, or structural connection in, in that sense. But we are very much partners in the work that we do. We always used to say when I was at the AHA that the state associations were the AHA's most important strategic partners because we do so much work uh, around policy and advocacy and that's actually that 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 that's absolutely um, right. We do have some role in appointing members to various uh, AHA policy groups and the like, but there's no. I don't report to anybody at the AHA, but we work very closely together. In some respects, it's a handshake, and you know we work in partnership to to do the work that we do. Um, we couldn't do the 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 federal advocacy work that that goes on if it weren't for the AHA. We don't have a staff member who sits and works in Washington and, and uh, lobbies the, the delegation down there. So we really do rely on 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 them for for a lot of that. So you know the the hospital association is you know it's a, it's a unique organization. As I said, we represent all of the hospitals in the state of New Hampshire. Every hospital is a is a member. They don't have to be, um, but every hospital uh, belongs to the association and. We represent hospitals, so we go speak to the legislature, the governor, the federal delegation, and you know we speak to the media. We we gather information, resources. We provide education to our members, and it's it's interesting. I I often say to our members, I'm not the association. The the board hires me. I, I run the organization. I, I lead it, but the members are the association. They are the ones who we exist for. If it weren't for the members, who who would we be? And so, you know, my job and our job as a staff is to really bring our members together to help to help them understand the the key issues and challenges. And how do we work through those issues? Because what happens in a small hospital or a large hospital, they're all providing care. How do, how, do the, how do those issues, whether it's an IT or whether it's a clinical issue or whether it's a supply chain issue, those are things that they all deal with. And so our job is to help bring them together. And so one of the things that we do at the association is we bring different groups together. So the CMOs, the chief medical officers, the chief nursing officers, the chief financial officers, the accounts receivables, quality leads, all of those folks, they come together and they work through issues. So right now, um, there's a whole host of issues around COVID um, that we're dealing with. But just take, for instance, issues of the, the vaccine ad- administration. And how are, how, are, how are hospitals who are going to be key to getting the vaccine to, to be able to vaccinate their staff, to be able to vaccinate patients in their communities, is so fundamentally important. But we have to do that in a way that when the vaccine comes, we can get it to the hospitals and that they can can do that um, in a way that that 
make sense from a business process, from, from a regulatory process, from a quality and safety piece. And not everybody looks at everything the same way. And so as we sit and, and work with our partners in, in how do we do that, you know, they've, they've got their responsibilities to develop these platforms and these software things and all the rest to, to make to, to get those vaccines out to, to, to do all that administration. And our hospitals actually have to deliver it and put those vaccine into people's arms. And so we've spent literally over the last month, you know, I spent, I, I've spent hours on, you know, Zoom calls with hospital representatives, with chief information officers, with clinicians um, and others, and our state partners working through those issues. It, in some respects, you know, we can boil a lot of our issues down to communication. How do we, how are we communicating to one another? How are we managing um, these issues so that when we roll them out, they can be successful? I can stand up and I can say, well, it should be this way. If the state doesn't do it that way, or if the hospitals don't see it that way, or somebody isn't able to, to manage it in, in that way, we've got chaos. And so, again, it's really trying to bring all of that together. And, and I have to say, you know, one of the unique aspects of, of New Hampshire is this local control, right? Community. I grew up, in, I grew up in, in, in the Midwest and I grew up in a town called Prairie Village. I would never, ever say to somebody if I met, yeah, I'm from Prairie Village, Kansas. I, I'd say, I, I'm from Kansas City. But if you meet somebody in New England, Man, they're going to tell you what town they live in, what high school they went to. I mean, it's it's and and so that that local control, that community is so important, and I think that extends into the the policy world of of what we do and how we do our work. And so, people sitting down working together to solve those problems is 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 a is a common thing that people are frankly used to, which you know which helps. Now, having said that, I don't want to be Pollyanna, um, there are differences, right? And, you know, government has a set of expectations. The federal government's saying you got to do things this way. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it works the way they want it to for us. And so, you know, we got to figure out ways to work around that. And I think from my perspective, that's where we spend a lot of time is really trying to figure out how do, how do we make things work? How do we operationalize some of these things so that we can meet the needs of the patients and, and communities that we serve. I like your example, because I was going to ask you about COVID, but anyway, but, um, but your example of like the vaccine uh, of developing a vaccine plan, that's a, that's a thing that I hadn't thought about it really, but it makes a lot of sense. Like you're, so the hospitals need to kind of come up with a joint plan. This is a, a shared resource that going to need to have a plan for for deployment of that resource mm-hmm. and to have them cooperating rather than competing with each other on that plan is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a role that you play in helping them helping them come up with a cooperative not not necessarily to tell them what to do but to help them come up with a plan that that works for them. Is that a fair Absol- statement? Absolutely. A- absolutely. Um, and you know just again on on this vaccine issue New Hampshire is the only state in the country that doesn't have what's known as a, an, infor- an, an immunization information system or a registry system. So when you think about it, and this vaccine is going to be really important because people are going to need to get two doses. So when Mark Bonica gets his vaccine, he's going to get dose one. And depending upon which vaccine it is, X number of days later, you're going to need to get 
the second dose of that same vaccine. So we need we need something to be able to make certain that you're getting the same vaccine at the same time or at the right time and all of that. And if we don't have that system, you know, where does that where does that reside? So the state is actually attempting to in uh, uh, put in place a system right now. We won't it won't be ready for this initial rollout. So we've got this sec- separate system. And so trying to get those systems to talk with the electronic health records that hospitals have, which aren't all the same. And, you know, so those are, those are big challenges. And it's, you know, so we have, you know, we have these conversations and um, if somebody were to just look in from the outside, they may think, gosh, um, those are pretty adversarial conversations. And they're really not because if we need to get data and information into the system, we got to figure out how we do that. So when the data goes into the system, the system can 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 acknowledge it, um, and and it and it's useful. So you know we do we we push back and forth and and we try and come up with a way to to make it happen. And I'm I'm hopeful that um, you know we're going to be able to do so because it's it's just so fundamentally important to our ability to stop the spread of of COVID nineteen and uh, ensure that we can kind of all get back to kind of life that we want, which is being able to be out and about and, and all of those things. Let me just clarify a little something. You, you talked about you're a membership organization. So there are 26 hospitals in the state of New Hampshire. So you're a, the, the hospital association is a not-for-profit entity. It's not a government right. entity. It's a, it's a not-for-profit. Right. So, and, and so the hospitals themselves choose whether they're going to be members or not. And right. that, that, when you say members, that's, that's who you're talking about. You're not talking about, indi- there aren't individual members. Like I'm not going to join the hospital association as a, as Mark, I'm, but, but Wentworth Douglas, my local hospital or Exeter there, that's your members. when you're talking that's about. Correct. That's right. That's right. And, and so within what I think one of the interesting things about New Hampshire is the fact that those 26 hospitals break down evenly between critical access hospitals, which is, uh, we, we don't need to go into the definition of that, but small hospitals and 13, so 13 critical access hospitals, 13 PPS hospitals. How do you, I mean, and then we have, we actually, and for folks who don't know the geography of New Hampshire, we've got a pretty significant divide between kind of the North country, we call it mm-hmm. the North country, like above the notch, right? So there's this mountain range and um, people, you know, and and southern New Hampshire is so most of the population of the states in, in the south. Also, most of the large, all the large hospitals are in the south. Well, that's not true. Dartmouth is up in kind of the north country um, ish. So, got geography. You've got size. How do you kind of navigate the and and all that generates different interests um, between the organizations. Uh, how do you navigate those those differences of interest? Well, again, as I said earlier, I think one of the things that we have to focus on, you know, you can focus on the issues where we may not have consensus, or you can focus on the areas where we do. And I think there's far more that unites us than divides us. So, you know, just thinking about the the current COVID-19 pandemic, we need one another. We really truly do. We convene our members multiple times a week on, on calls where we're sharing information, we're sharing resources and information back to the, to the hospitals. 
So they they can see real time, you know, what's happening in their community, what's happening in others. So as as a hospital, I mean, as we think about you know where we are right now, I mean, we you know we have a surge of of new COVID patients, hospitalizations are are on the rise. How does how's a how's a hospital going to manage that? Um, you know, if somebody ends up with you know more patients than they're able to to manage today, is there a way that they can find some some help from their colleague, you know, on an, in another part of the state or down the road to maybe take some patients or to bring some resources to them? We actually saw that earlier in the spring, and we had a couple of hospitals that were running low on on ventilators, and you know, some of the hospitals in other parts of the state that weren't seeing a significant uh, number of COVID patients were able to, um, you know, share uh, some of those resources. So maybe they shared ventilators, maybe they shared staff, um, or maybe they brought a patient um, from one of those other hospitals up to, to their institution. So uh, again, we focus on what unites us, not what divides us. And, you know, those areas where we do have differences, we got to figure out how we work through those. And so I think I said this earlier, but our business, this business of, of associations, it's built on relationships. As you said, we have 26 you know, community hospitals. We have five uh, specialty hospitals. But if a CEO announced today that they were leaving, retiring, moving to another job, every other CEO in the state would know it by the end of the day. And so if you have a new person, we all know that. And so we're able to make decisions. We're able to do the work that we do because we have built relationships, we know one another, we trust one another, and those those relationships are so important. It's easy when everybody agrees, right? We all agree on this, so we can all say we can all say yes. But when the issues are more challenging, and the issues are becoming more challenging, um, as you know, payment and all kinds of things, um, you know, market forces, all of those kinds of things are, are coming into play. That's when it's so important that we've built those relationships that we can actually sit down and have those, you know, more challenging conversations with one another. How do we develop policy? How do we address those issues so that we can continue to work together for the betterment of our patients and our communities? So you 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 mentioned this phrase, you use this phrase, business of associations. And you had earlier referred to when you were at, at the American Hospital Association potentially being in conflict with say the the AMA the American Medical Association i i realize that you, i'm not trying to pose that you're in conflict with those organizations all the time but obviously so you have we have a New Hampshire Medical Association which mm-hmm. is kind of the is, is the same relationship to the AMA mm-hmm. right so uh so they represent the interests of physicians in the in the state we have a New Hampshire Nurses Association uh that represents interests of nurses and so Sometimes those, I, I, sometimes those interests are going to align, right? Mm-hmm. So they'll, the nurses' association is going to have an in, align with the interests of the hospitals. Sometimes, but but nurses are a an input for hospitals, so they're a cost to hospitals. Mm-hmm. So there's naturally going to be sometimes there's going to be some conflict of interest between those. I'm just kind of curious, not to dig into the not to not to dig into the conflict, but more about kind of your your ecosystem of associations. I'm curious about how you think about that. Like so there so there's you representing the hospitals, there's another organization representing the physicians, the nurses and so forth. How do you all how do you look at that? How do you see that landscape um and how do you interact with those other organizations? 
so yeah, we work very closely um, with the, the medical society, with the nurse association, the nursing homes, the home health aides, you know, the community health centers and, and a host of others. And it, it's, it's really, I think, think the opportunity to, to leverage our own message. So if it's, you know, if we can work with them on certain issues, in fact, the, the hospital association, the medical society and the nurses association just recently uh, issued a joint letter urging all Granite Staters to, to wear a mask and social distance and all of those things, because we can build the message bigger than just any one of us. So, you know, we, we work on, on a lot of things. Um, we spend a lot of time talking um, to one another I, again, building those relationships, um, you know, working together, there are, there will be times when, when we do have, you know, differences um, and we just have, we have to work through those, but I think we have, you know, more alignment, certainly in New Hampshire. I know some of my peers around the country have much more conflict with some of their other sister types of associations. I don't think we've had that same kind of relationship because frankly, we have to find ways to work together because if we can do that, if we can you know, do things that benefit our patients and communities, it benefits hospitals, it benefits doctors, it benefits nurses um, and the like. And so that's, that's really the, the framework with which we kind of think about it. And, and again, as, as I think about all the things in, in the COVID environment, being able to, to leverage our own message uh, with others is, is so important. And, and in fact, the, that letter that we did just a, a week or two ago we got tremendous coverage of that by the media. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that it wasn't just one of us, it was all three of us. And so they really, the media really focused on, wow, the doctors, the nurses, the, you know, the hospitals are, are saying this, this is really something that, that that's newsworthy that, that we ought to focus on. Now, if we had done it ourselves, maybe they would have caught on just because it's COVID and it's so important right now. But I, I think that really made a difference. So one of the kind of, unique things about New Hampshire that I think most people don't know is we have the, what is it? The third largest uh, deliberative body in the world. Right. right? right. Uh, so tell so talk about that a little bit and how that is, how that affects kind of your business and, and, and what you, what you do. Yeah. So I worked in Washington. I lobbied the Congress. We had 435 members of the house of representatives for what, 300 some million people. And I come to New Hampshire 1.3 and we've got 400 house members on, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and, and the funny That's thing great. is, you know, where do you, where do you find them? You know, they don't, they don't have offices, most of them other than leadership. Right. Um, you know, so you're really sort of chasing them down the hall, you know, trying to, to find them. Um, but, but here's the thing that, that I think is what makes New Hampshire unique, obviously, as I said, this, this local control community focus, that that's what that's what generates 400 members of, of the house is that real focus on I want this person to represent me, and from a lobbying perspective, it's a heck of a lot easier to lobby the Senate. There are 24 of them as opposed to 400. You can actually get your arms around 24 yeah. legislators versus 400. But what's what's really important about the work that we do? Obviously, we have people in our staff who lobby every day. I go up to the legislature. I, I testify. I speak to legislators. But it's it's so important that not just I'm doing that or that our staff is doing that, but that our members are doing that. And so, and I'll give you a, an example of, of why I think this is so important. But 
if I'm sort of providing that message about why we support this bill or why we support that bill or why we shouldn't should oppose this one or that one, they ex, you know they expect to hear that from me, right? I'm the hired gun, um, the hired lobbyist, so of course I'm going to tell them that. But when the person from their community that they represent tells them those things as well and can help them understand why that's so important to their community, to their ability to deliver care to their patients, you know, to, to employ the, the doctors and nurses and, and others in their community, that's what makes the, the lobbying effort so powerful because it's, you know, it's that local voice. Um, when they hear it from, you know, the, the administrator, the trustee, the, the, the nurse, the doc, um, those things make such a, such a difference. And I'll just give you an example, you know, Medicaid expansion, when the federal government expanded the Medicaid program under the Affordable Care Act, uh, many states jumped on board right away. The federal government was going to cover hundred percent of the costs right away. And then over time, after three years, the state was going to have to pick up a portion of that up to 10%. Well, everybody knows sort of what happened. The Affordable Care Act became a political football and you know, Democrats liked it, Republicans didn't. And we had at the time uh, in 2014, um, we had a, a Republican Senate, a Democratic House and a Democratic governor. And there was this, this effort to, to expand the Medicaid program. And you know, we needed to get the legislature to go along. The House was likely going to get the, was 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 there. The governor was there, and you know we had to get the the Senate to go along. And ultimately, what what we did was we decided to instead of making this a a, a lobbying you know activity out of Concord, we were going to bring everybody to Concord and and go talk to legislators here and tell them why it was so important. We said, you know, no, that's not that's not where we want to do this. We want that to happen back home. And so we, we invited legislators to come in small groups to talk to their uh, local hospitals about why was Medicaid expansion important? What did it mean in terms of coverage? Um, it meant that people who ultimately, who were coming to the hospital who didn't have insurance, you know, how they were, how that was resulting in uncompensated care and was costing the hospital money and, and inability of the patient to get the kind of routine primary preventive care. So they, they had to wait until they were in crisis and then they came to the hospital. And we talked about those issues. We didn't say support the Affordable Care Act. We talked about why that was important. And, you know, almost to a T, we would get legislators, Republican legislators would say, well, gee, that sounds like a really good idea. Why don't, why, we should do that. And then we, you know, kind of say, well, you know, that's Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. And then you'd kind of get this, oh, wait a minute. Um, well, that's really good. If we can do that without having to pay for it, uh, we'd, we'd support that. And I, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that that effort to communicate at a, at a local level at home was so fundamentally important because, you know, you had many of the very conservative groups who were opposing uh, the Affordable Care Act, you know, sort of waiting to pounce when everybody got to Concord. But once legislators had come to Concord and, you know, it, we would have lost the, the ability to, to really shape that conversation. And, you know, I'm, I'm so, so thankful that we were able to, to do that in a, in a way that, that I think, you know, in some ways sort of took the politics out of the conversation. Now, of course, when New Hampshire ultimately had to reauthorize Medicaid expansion um, and had to come up with the money to pay for it, 
then legislators said, well, we'll, we'll keep it, but you got to figure out how to pay for it because we're not going to use our own money to pay for that, um, which is part of, can be, can be a frustration for, for those of us on the policy uh, advocacy side. But we ultimately were able to come up with a way to, 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 to make it happen. Hospitals stood up and said, we'll make voluntary contributions to cover the state share. And so along with hospitals and insurance companies, um, we were able to come up with the, those dollars to, to pay for that for that reauthorization. Ultimately had to make another shift because of the, the new administration didn't like those voluntary contributions. But you know, to this day, hospitals continue to make contributions to support state programs. Um, and right now, supporting programs that uh, are used to fight substance uh, misuse uh, services because of that, because of, of our commitment to making sure that Medicaid expansion continues and that people can get the coverage that they need, which, you know, again, is, 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 is fascinating. We did a series of, of, of roundtables after Medicaid expansion was, was passed, and we were t- out talking to, to the hospitals and hearing from, from their, the doctors and nurses who would say, I had a patient who I would normally see at least once a month in the emergency room. You know, so someone with diabetes um, didn't have insurance. They didn't get, you know, the insulin and other things that they needed to manage their, their disease. See them in the emergency room. We'd often have to admit them. But six months since Medicaid expansion, I haven't seen them. Not because they're going someplace else, but because they're not coming into the hospital. Um, you know, they're able to get the care that they need. And to me, that's, you know, that's what Medicaid expansion was all about. Um, you know, helping to move the patients to a better place um, so that they can get the primary preventive care that they need. For many of us, expanding coverage has been a hallmark of, of the work that we've done in our career. And, you know, it's often, you know, been, we add coverage by onesies and twosies. It's not very often that you get to add, you know, in New Hampshire, 50, 60, 70,000 people to, to the coverage roles um, like we were in, in Medicaid expansion. I, I wanted to ask you along the lines of uh, expansion of coverage and, and getting coverage with, you know, with COVID, one of the things we've seen is an, is an expansion of the use of telehealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to ask about your thoughts on telehealth, the future of telehealth, and one of the things that I found fascinating that I learned spending some time up at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and talking to their connected care program up there was, um, you know, I'd always kind of thought of telehealth as doctor through my iPhone, but Dartmouth and their program and other programs, of course, as well, are providing a lot of provider to provider support. So tele-ICU, where the Dartmouth ICU team provides support to a hospital, a critical access hospital up in the North Country that maybe doesn't have a staff neurologist or somebody else to... I'm curious, kind of... So I'm curious, and obviously the, the provider to patient telehealth programs are, are also really important for access in, and in particular in rural communities, New Hampshire, much of New Hampshire is. What are your thoughts on, on kind of, uh, we've seen an expansion of that, of those policies and allowances for those policies uh, with COVID, but kind of going forward, how do you see that changing, expanding? Do you see that becoming permanent? Your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I think the kinds of things that you were referencing in terms of sort of the tele ICU and sort of the provider to provider, I think that's going to continue to grow. 
Um, and, you know, we've seen a, a fair bit of that around the ICU. We're seeing that in terms of behavioral health, right? Um, so a small hospital may not have a behavioral health uh, provider. Um, so having that ability to connect um, is, is, is really, has really been important. But, you know, the, the sort of the shift and the expansion of telehealth, you know, we've been working at trying to expand telehealth for years. And we've had, you know, challenge after challenge. Part of that was because of, you know, technology. Part of that's because of, um, you know, reimbursement. Part of that, you know, the federal government um, wouldn't really recognize telehealth for Medicare beneficiaries in urban areas. Um, in rural areas, yes, but not in, in urban areas. When the pandemic hit, it really sort of the, the silver lining, if you will, was the ability to just fast pace a lot of those kinds of changes. So allowing for all kinds of, of telehealth modalities, um, you know, a cell phone, um, you know, an iPhone, um, Zoom, you know, those kinds of things were, were really, really important. But the ability to get paid for doing that, um, you know, the ability to see patients, I think that is, is it's here to stay. It's not necessarily going to, be going to become a replacement for, so nobody's going to go into a doctor's office anymore, but it's going to become a, a, an integral part of the healthcare system, and in fact, you know, one of the things that that we've heard over the over the last several months is, you know, for many of those patients who were receiving treatment or, or counseling for substance use or mental health services, adherence to, to 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 appointments has gone way up because patients can actually have their appointment online. And, you know, they don't have to get out. Um, sometimes, you know, transportation, getting to an appointment can can be a challenge for for some people. Being out in the pandemic, you know, is, is another issue. Um, you know, the stigma of mental health and, and substance use services. The fact that people are able to continue to get those services, adherence to, to appointments has, has gone way up. Um, so those things are, are really important. I think, you know, Medicare's, you know, working to lock in some of the the changes that that they that they've made likely congress will need to step in and do do some things we were very fortunate here the governor issued a, a very strong executive order that allowed for for all that the legislature actually sort of codified a lot of that um, in statute the end of the session this year so we've made a lot of progress but i think you know we have more to more work to do but i think had we not had the pandemic, I don't know that we would have seen um, the acceleration of, of telehealth in the way that we that we did. I want to wrap up on a, a few questions that are more leadership oriented. You've you've talked a lot about developing relationships. Now, you as a as an organization, you don't have the ability to direct your members. You spend a lot of time influencing members of Congress. How do you build those relationships? What makes what? How does how does somebody become influential? You know, it's it's a great question. It's you know, it's one um, those of us in in these roles think a lot about. I, I think part of you know part of being influential is sometimes not always you know, separating oneself from the goal and the objective. You know, not taking oneself too seriously in in the work that we do. My job is to help lead this effort and. At the end, if we're successful, I, I get to turn to my members and I get to tell them what a great job they did and their involvement, their engagement, you know, led to that victory and, and, and all of that. And, you know, if we're not successful, um, you know, I get to stand up and I get to say, you know, we need to do, we, we could have done, you know, I could have been done things differently and, and, and the like. Um, but I think fundamentally to me, 
if I think about leaders that I've known, you know, they're people who they're willing to stand up, right? They're willing to stand up for, for a cause, for an issue, speak out. But they're also people who are fundamentally good listeners. I think, you know, one of the m- most important things that I've had to learn in, in my job is to, to, to be a better listener and to not always respond with an immediate answer and sometimes respond not with an answer, but with a question. And to help us think through that, you know, thorny problem, right, is, is to help them, our members come to those, um, you know, conclusions. It's, it's better if, if somebody else can come to that conclusion on their own. Um, if, if you find a way to work through that, then to tell them, here's the answer. I know sometimes people can get frustrated with this work because there's a lot of process. We got to meet with this group. We need to meet with that group. but. At the end, we want everybody to say, yeah, that's right. That's, that's the, the answer. And one of the things that, you know, one of our payments, you know, our reimbursement is, is always a, a sticky issue. Um, and we've had some challenges with something called the Medicaid enhancement tax. It's the Medicaid dish program. It's a long history. I won't go into it. But a number of years ago, there were, you know, lawsuits and the like uh, around all that. And we ultimately ended up having to, to settle uh, these lawsuits with the state. And we did that not because I walked into the room and put a piece of paper on the table and said, here's the solution to the hospitals. But, you know, we literally worked, you know, in, in, you know, in, in this building, you know, in conference rooms around here and worked through those issues. We had, you know, big, big hospitals, small hospitals with very different interests and perspectives. And, you know, when, when, as they say, when, when the chicken wings on the platter get fewer, the elbow wings, the elbows get sharper and, and boy, you know, we had some real challenges, but we were able to solve that problem because we created a solution that everybody, not that everybody got everything they wanted, but everybody understood what we got at the end and what it took to get there. And I have to say, that was a, a really a defining moment for us. Um, and for, for me, I think in in really bringing our members together and helping them understand the value of the association of working together through the association to solve you know big problems. It's not easy. It doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it can be messy, but if we can do that, we have you know greater opportunity for for lasting um, you know uh, unity uh, than if we just said here here's the answer and. I think again, you know that to me, that is what allows me as as the the leader to be able to kind of bring our members together to so that you know, I certainly hope they feel that you know I'm somebody that's going to listen, that's going to help try and synthesize and bring people together. If somebody's looking for me to to to, to solve all their problems, to to say yes to everything that you know that they want, that's probably not going to be a, a very fruitful relationship. But if they know that they can come and they can they can work together, um, they they know they're going to have an honest opportunity to to make their case and to you know at the end of the day we're going to come up with the the solution that that best fits their needs and everyone else's. I think you know I think I think our, our members are are willing to be a part of that. Um, it, it takes a lot of effort, and you know, I think one of our biggest challenges is 
you know, getting our members to, to spend their time with us, to be part of the, the conversation that we have, because um, they're busy. Running a hospital and healthcare system is a, is, is a big job. Um, and, you know, for them to spend time with us takes away from their work at the hospital. But if we can do the, the work here that develops the right set of policies, um, it, it helps them and, and the work that they're able to do back at the hospital. So, so thinking about your career, all the leadership work that you have done and, and the things you've learned, was there a lesson you had to learn kind of the hard way that you now reflect on and you've built on? So something maybe that didn't quite go the way you thought it would and, and, you've, built, and you've learned from that and built on it. One of the policy things that we attempted to do a number of years ago, um, as you know, hospitals are looking to affiliate, partner, you know, potentially merge and uh, create larger health systems to really spread their, 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 their reach and, and their ability to serve their communities. There's been a lot of talk about how, how do we regulate that, right? You know, you got to get approval, at, regulatory approval at the state, you got to get regulatory approval at the federal level. And it, you know, it's costly, it's time consuming. And what we said is, why don't we build that process so that we do that here in New Hampshire? You know, who better to make the decision about what's in the best interest of New Hampshire? You know, somebody on 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 State Street in Concord or somebody on Constitution Avenue down in Washington who, you know, may not know where Concord, New Hampshire is. And I think, you know, that it was the right, it was the right set of policy questions. But in the end, we didn't have consent, uh, consensus among our members. Um, and so we had members, you know, sort of on, on opposite sides of, of that question. We were able to get something through the, the Senate, because as I said, you can, you know, you can work with the Senate. We had good leadership in the Senate. We were able to get something um, through there. But we were never able to, to get it across the finish line in the House. And learning to navigate a 400-member House um, is a very different thing than a 24-member Senate. So ultimately, you know, while we got something through the Senate, we never got it through the House, um, and we've never been able to kind of come back to that. Um, and it's really, you know, pretty fundamentally important as we think about how health is being organized and delivered in the, in the, you know, the years ahead, how organizations are coming together are, are um, a pretty important question and how ultimately that oversight is, is provided, um, is, 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 is important as well. And, and again, I, I still believe that that was the, uh, the right policy approach. Um, we were just not able to, to get it across the finish line. Well, I know you need to go, but uh, so let me finish on this last question. So, you, you know, I teach a lot of young folks. How would they know that this is the field that they, what is it that is in someone's character that this would be a good fit, this, this, the world of lobbying and policy and so forth? Yeah, you know, I mean, lobbying gets a bad rap, right? Um, as I always say, don't tell my mom I'm a lobbyist. She thinks I have a real job, but lobbying is, it's all about sort of telling a story, right? It's, it's telling the, the story about what it, what it is that you do, what you can do and how you can make a difference. And I think less of myself as a lobbyist. And I think of myself more as an advocate, um, an advocate for hospitals and, you know, somebody who, who has an opportunity to make a difference. And from a policy perspective, you know, you have an opportunity to make a difference on a, on a pretty big scale. Hospital leaders do the same thing, and they they affect um, the the lives and livelihood of people in in their communities. 
And it's, which is incredibly important. And from my perspective, we do that on a much broader scale. You know, we have the ability to do that across all hospitals, across the entire state, and to some extent across the country. And so, you know, again, I always think about, you know, do you like to learn? Um, do you like to, to push yourself to, 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 be, to, to become and, and be able to do different things? You know, do you want to, you know, kind of give back and, and um, you know, make a difference, do something that's bigger than just yourself? Those are some of the qualities that I think, you know, draw me to this field um, and I think can make you successful if it's something, you know, that you're interested in. And, and a lot of people think, well, gee, how do I become the president of the hospital association? Well, for students, that's, you know, that's, that's not the place you want to start. Um, you know, you want to start at a place where, you know, you, you can sort of kind of get on that ladder and, and take that first step. And um, within healthcare organizations, there's lots of opportunities, you know, hospitals, long-term care, community health centers, um, substance use, there's lots of things. State government, federal government, you know, those are great opportunities to learn to, you know, the, the great opportunity I had was, you know, I was making no money in Washington. I started out, which was, you know, that was the bad news, but it was also the good news. Um, there weren't, while there were a ton of people willing to work for, for no money like I was, there were other people who weren't. And so, you know, I had the ability to sort of jump in and work as hard as I could. And good people are hard to find. You work hard, people are going to notice that, and you're going to have opportunities. It may not, you know, be your first job, maybe your second job or your third job, but if you, you know, work your tail off, um, and try and 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 learn and and do more and more. I think that you know there's there's no you know there, there's no ceiling to to folks um, in terms of what they're they're capable of doing. And again, I've I've had a I've had a great you know career. It's been unbelievably satisfying to me to be able to you know to serve and to to help you know people, whether it's you know students or or others um, you know along their career path. My one of the greatest compliments you can get is when one of your team members, you know, gets a promotion or gets a job and goes on and does something more exciting um, or, you know, more challenging, you know, with more responsibilities. Hopefully that reflects on you that you've been able to, you know, give that person the, the ability to, to step up and to, to take on new roles. Steve, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed learning more about your organization and, and everything you do. Thank you, Mark. This has been fun. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community and we'll talk with you again soon.